it's the 16th of September, 2018, and this is episode 375 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas Antonopoulos. Hi, everyone. So Bitcoin is a protocol in motion. And a lot of the stuff that we did at the beginning has turned out to be stuff that we either didn't need or that we've grown out of over time. Last month, we had an example of this when the Bitcoin alert system, one of the initial ways to communicate with the community via the protocol, was not shut down. It had actually been shut down an amount of time prior to that. But at this point, the public key was disclosed. And this key basically gives you access to an alert system that allows for anyone who has access to this key to then send alerts within the Bitcoin network, and it would be received within your core wallet. Andreas, can you give us a little bit of context on this? Why was this originally used? So this was a feature introduced by Satoshi Nakamoto in one of the early versions. The idea was to have a way to communicate emergencies to the participants of the Bitcoin network by creating a message that was not just propagated inside the Bitcoin system, but also authenticated, meaning that it can only have originated from the three or four people who have access to this alert key and can generate these messages. But of course, part of the problem here is that some of the people who have this key are known, some of the people who had this key were unknown, and it gave these people a level of authority that proved to be not only unnecessary, but unwanted in the system. People assumed that anyone who had the key, their opinion matters more, or if they send an alert, it's more important. That's one aspect. The other aspect was, you know, as Bitcoin evolved, other channels become available for communication. It was no longer necessary to use an in-band system that's part of the protocol. And finally, there were several vulnerabilities discovered within the alerting systems that would allow someone to construct a malicious message that would be propagated with a high priority and high level of authority by every Bitcoin node and could compromise older nodes that had vulnerabilities. So because of all of these factors over the past two years, that system was gradually dismantled as of version, I think, 12 of the Bitcoin core software that system was deprecated. It would no longer receive messages. And then a series of messages were sent with an increasing sequence number in the alerts until the final sequence number was sent in order to make it impossible to send a new message. And then after a quiet period, finally, a couple of weeks ago, the private keys were revealed to the world. So when you say that incremented messages were sent that made it more difficult, can you explain what you mean by that? So the alert system within it had a sequence number. So you could send an alert and that had a specific sequence number. And then you could supersede the last alert by sending one with an increased sequence number. So by sending one with the maximum sequence number and that supersedes all others, it was assumed that that would make it impossible to propagate another alert because the maximum one has already been sent then a, dis a vulnerability was discovered, which actually allowed you to double send the maximum sequence number alert again. So it didn't actually effectively close down the system as expected on some clients. At this point, there is no Bitcoin node software that is current that has the alert system in it. The only chance you have is if you're running a very old version 
of the Bitcoin software, then you might have the alert system in it, and that means you might be vulnerable to certain types of attacks. Now, I have a question about this. Was it ever used at any point to send a message that was basically in keeping with the original idea of why this was implemented? Yes. Okay, and what was that? So at least one time it was used would have been, uh, I think it was April 2013, when we had the 26 block inadvertent fork during the transition between version 07 and 08 of the Bitcoin software due to a bug found in Berkeley DB that only allowed for 1,024 file handles to be opened. That bug caused a forwards incompatible crash on all new clients and the network diverged for 26 blocks and had to be pulled back together. And the alert system was used then to notify people that there was a problem, an inadvertent fork. I remember that one. That was a good example of how a hard fork can be resolved. And so it's interesting to see that the messaging protocol was actually part of that. Andreas, when we talk about this as a messaging protocol, it's actually part of the Bitcoin protocol, or it was part of the Bitcoin protocol itself. This wasn't just something that was strapped on top, right? Well, the peer-to-peer -peer protocol within Bitcoin can carry a variety of messages and new messages are added and old messages are removed from time to time. So to say it was part of the protocol simply means that this type of message was recognized and interpreted by the Bitcoin software for some period of time. And then once it was obsoleted, it's no longer recognized and interpreted by the software and other messages have been added. So the protocol itself is a collection of different messages, their meaning and how to interpret them. And this was part, yeah. So the interesting part to me about the messaging protocol here, the messaging system, is that, as you said, outside of the Satoshi keys, that really is one of the only ways that a user is truly differentiated within the Bitcoin system, is if you had access to this key, because it gives you access to this very special and specific suite of tools, which is, of course, the ability to send these emergency messages. Is there anything else like that in the Bitcoin protocol, either now or in the past, that you can think of? No. So there's probably three or four things. There's the original keys that correspond to the addresses into which Satoshi mined the first Bitcoin, Satoshi's Bitcoin keys. There's PGP keys that Satoshi used to sign messages. And the original Satoshi email mailbox at uh, GMX that Satoshi used to communicate with people. I believe the only thing that, I, I, I mean, we've had people try to use all three of those mechanisms to claim to be Satoshi or claim authority. His mail was hacked or their mail, their email box was hacked. People have forged PGP signatures and people have attempted to forge signatures with the Bitcoin addresses of Satoshi. And so the alert key itself hasn't been abused yet. But there was always the risk that someone would claim to have some special authority granted upon them by Satoshi himself by using this key. And so to avoid that, the private key was made public. And now all you can prove by using that key is that you watch that YouTube. So this seems like actually a pretty good example of a system that was integrated into Bitcoin as a way to kind of bootstrap it initially when there weren't really any central ways to communicate with everybody, and there wasn't really any sort of broad awareness of any of this stuff. But as time went on, it became more of a liability than it was anything good. And so this is really kind of a, a cleanup step almost to take out some of the last vulnerabilities that someone could use to try and claim superior authority relative to just some other random schmo on the street who has good ideas. 
So are we talking about Gavin and Dreesen or the other people who have the key? Because it's only like a few people who have the key, right? Well, but the concern is that somebody could, can, key is ever leaked if any of those people are ever compromised, then that person can then claim to be Satoshi. And there were some unknown people that also had a key. Is that right? Well, so there were presumed to be six key holders, three of them known, three of them unknown. There was a lot of speculation about who had it and not. And there were some concerns that it may have leaked. Uh, all of which caused a very high degree of uncertainty. And quite honestly, a lot of people had objected to the very basis of the alert system from the very beginning. It was considered a bad idea by a lot of people. And I'm glad to see it gone. It was one area of centralization that was both unnecessary and introduced significant risks unnecessarily. So I think it's a positive that it's gone. But I dislike when... The why is for politics, not for technicals, but they cloud the politics behind the technical. Explain what you mean by that, Jonathan. Sure. I remember talking to a Bitcoin Core developer a few days before consensus, and they're saying, you know, things are just really bad. We're just waiting for one good excuse to kick Gavin out of commit access to the Bitcoin. And then literally the next day, Gavin says, oh, Craig Wright is Satoshi. And then the core dev said, well, Gavin said that he would give the keys to Satoshi. And if he thinks Craig Wright is Satoshi, then in this temporary interim period where we don't know if he has or hasn't done that yet, we need to temporarily revoke SAS access until we determine whether or not these keys have leaked. And that temporary was a lie clouded to hide the politics that that FUD was put out there just to do something political that became permanent. So when we're looking at like, well, what's another scenario where... Gavin has more interest or more capability in the system than another core developer. And this is just like one last vestigial ability that he had given to him from Satoshi himself over the network that, yes, there are very real technical reasons to undo it. And there are very real philosophical reasons to do it. But I also don't want to pretend that people aren't petty and that they're better than they are. And, you know, like pretending Bitcoin doesn't have politics or there's power plays at play is not a thing that's occurring because it very much is. And I see this as a well-founded technical argument that's more fundamentally a, why should that guy have a power I don't have? And I thought we kicked him out two years ago anyway, sort of thing. Of all of the technical capabilities, I think this one is the least good example of a political play that is kind of disguised as a technical reasoning. I think the technical reasoning here was extremely strong and the political play was minor and really irrelevant because there's not much you can do with this key and everyone knew Gaff had the key, so it was hardly news. It was much more dangerous to the people who some thought might have a copy of this key, the unknowns in that equation. So uh, while I agree with you, of course, you know, human beings are beset by rationalization and hypocrisy, and, and we all do that. And there are many great examples of hypocrisy and rationalization of political motives into technical ones. I don't think the alert key was a very good example of that. Well, that's good to hear. Is there anything like this that exists, maybe not in Bitcoin, but in other cryptocurrency systems? Well, yes, there are some areas of centralization that exist in other systems too. And I think this is one of the key insights, which is when people say a system is decentralized, that's a vague description because systems have multiple dimensions and some of them can be very decentralized and some of them can be very centralized. And they're always a mix of these factors. 
So another great example of that is decentralized exchange called Bancor, which operated with decentralized wallets by its users. But the smart contract that was used for trading also had an administrative level access that was highly centralized that gave preferential treatment to one key. And that ended up being the downfall of that particular smart contract. So that's a great example of where there's a centralized nexus hidden among a project that is considered decentralized by all other measures. So let's talk about Bancor for a second, because that actually is a really interesting example here. Bancor is an Ethereum smart contract based distributed exchange, which basically allows you to trade directly with the smart contract instead of needing to wait for a human to take the other side of your order. Recently, more than $20 million worth of Ether, Bancor, and other assets were stolen from the Bancor smart contracts. Now, this story might sound familiar. Huge sums of money stolen from early smart contract exploits or bugs. Yeah, I was going to say, really? I can't keep track of them all. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time when we talk about this, the answer is better auditing of the code, more just generalized experience in building smart contracts since they're so new. But actually, in this case, the smart contract wasn't compromised at all. As Andreas was saying, there was a backdoor put in. I, I, think, I think we have to be a bit careful with terminology here, and I want to also correct something I said. I said hidden, and I, I didn't actually mean that. This wasn't a hidden feature, and it's not a backdoor. This was, if you read the smart contract code, it's very clear that there is a privileged account. And I think we should talk about it in those terms. There was a privileged account within the smart contract system. And it wasn't really hidden, but you would have had to read the code in order to know that, that it was privileged? Let's say that if you read the brochure on the website and it had the word decentralized a dozen times plastered all over the place, there wasn't a little footnote with an asterisk that said, except for the privileged account that can control the smart contract. Right. Okay. So they weren't very upfront about it, but even if it technically... You're basically having a semantic argument here, though, because in reality, the two things that we're talking about, a privileged account versus a backdoor, are effectively the same thing in practice. The context behind all of this is, of course, things like the DAO hack, where you had smart contracts that were compromised because someone found a way to compromise them. And that was kind of like generation one of the smart contract attacks. And the batch we saw come out after that learned, quote unquote, learned from the DAO. And so they built in these ways to recover in the event of a theft or some sort of issue like this. That's sort of, from my perspective, the funny part here is that just like the Bitcoin alert system in that key represented both something that was really powerful and allowed people to fix problems, like with that fork that we were talking about, you know, that coordination may have been an important factor in that uh, issue getting resolved so cleanly and so quickly. It's similar here is that because they had this built in, yes, on the one hand, it allowed for certain tokens to be stolen, but it didn't allow for their tokens to be stolen because they had built in these controls there. So what looks like from one perspective to be prudent fiscal controls to limit your risk, on the other hand, also represent vulnerabilities that are effectively a new level of exploits that can then be used to perpetrate things like the DAO, but without requiring something to be found like the vulnerability in the DAO code itself. All it requires is the appropriate keys to be stolen. This is going to end up being a frequently played out scenario where 
people are trying to find the right balance between centralization and decentralization. And the DAO represents an example where there wasn't a capability within the contract to overcome a catastrophic bug. But then if you add the capability within the contract to overcome a catastrophic bug by centralizing some of the control to some privileged accounts, then you introduce another risk, which is if those privileged accounts are compromised, then they compromise the security. And so it's a double-edged sword. You can either say, let's go all the way decentralized, so there is no central point of failure, but there's also no central point of recovery. And we just have to make sure the code is mature enough and there's no bugs that we haven't found yet. And the other option is to create this centralized point of control to protect against unknowns, but then run the risk that if that's compromised, that is the security problem. I think there are going to be a variety of approaches. Some organizations are going to go for a bit of centralization. Some are going to go for no central point of control means no central point of failure. And depending on how mature the smart contracts are, one or the other may be a good, a good choice. I guess that's the question that I have about all of this. Is this an arms race where smart contract security steps up and then people who are trying to compromise smart contracts up their game and figure out how to beat that? And then you have like another layer of beating the latest set of attacks. Is it like that or is it more like it's a scale where on one side you have decentralized and on the other side you have control? And effectively you can choose where in the scale you want to be, but they all have downsides and there isn't really any solution that is ever going to emerge. It's absolutely an arms race. And in that arms race, you're going to have the maturity of smart contracts evolve to the point where they are considered broadly secure enough to manage certain types of functions and to control certain volume of funds. And then people will push the envelope and try to use them to do more and hold more value. And then they'll be found too weak to do that. And you'll have a series of attacks and you gradually scale up the volume of security you can manage. So let's say, for example, you can say, today we have smart contracts that are capable of securely storing up to X millions of dollars, for example, for certain types of functions. And over time, we may end up increasing that number as these contracts become more and more mature and people feel comfortable storing greater and greater value behind them. And that's how the whole space is going to evolve. Jonathan, I know you've been spending a lot of time thinking about insurance lately and kind of its impact on the cryptocurrency space with all of these things. Do you think that insurance plays a role in this stuff as we move forward? Or do you think that we should be looking for totally technical solutions to these problems and not looking at really the legacy apparatus? Well, it sort of depends how close to normal humans you want to get, right? like, you know, how robust of a use case you're trying to implement. You're looking at a, a lot of these companies and these dApps and the more real world, which is to say, dependent on activities and counterparties and processes that occur outside of something that could be described in a blockchain occur, the more you're finding that there isn't some sort of, you know, Nash equilibrium using Nakamoto consensus that can be described to sort of encapsulate the risk of your counterparty in. Technology lets us do more with less, and our desire for risk or our appetite for risk is sort of the same. So the more we grow in capability doesn't in any way change our risk appetite. So I think that Bitcoin is a solution to doing something in a cryptographically trustless way we couldn't have done before. And that didn't cease our desires to do. 
it just meant that we could now do more to get to our next level of risk. And in risk, they call that a moral hazard. Or it's just, you know, if you have 100 units of risk appetite, if you de-risk one component of that, you're just going to engage in more risk so that you're back to 100 you know units of risk appetite. So to bring that back to dApps and smart contracts, I think that the community has a certain level of risk. And as Andreas was saying, as we come up with more solutions to do things trustlessly, that's not going to mean that we stop doing or stop reaching. It just means that we're going to do more and more less secure things now that we can do other things that are securely. So I, I think it's an unending problem that will never be solved. Because even if 100% of everything everyone wants to do right now could be done in a cryptographically secure way 50 years from now, then the next 19-year-old with a crazy idea that can't be done securely will come out and everyone will be blown away by that. And then that will be the thing that we'll be doing. I'd like to kind of offer an analogy to this, which we're all familiar with, which is car safety and moral hazard in car safety. If you're driving a car that doesn't have seat belts, ABS, and airbags, you know, 40 miles an hour is a lethal speed to drive at, and you may actually drive slower. And then if you get into a car that has all of these super duper features, humans tend to overestimate how much faster they can go. And so they'll get into a car that has seat belts and airbags and anti-block, all-wheel drive, traction control wheels, and drive at twice the speed that, that they would otherwise feel comfortable because that moral hazard. So it, the safety features encourage people to expand the risk they're willing to take. Football is also a, a great example of that as to uh, what you'd be willing to do with pads versus what you'd be willing to do without pads. And because of that, you see more catastrophic injuries in football games where you feel confident in taking a play that you probably shouldn't have. EasyDNS is a domain name provider and registrar that shares our values. Flexibility, free speech, and control without lock-in. EasyDNS helps you meet your individual needs as the Swiss Army Knife for domain names since 1998. Outspoken defenders of privacy, due process, and great service, the folks at EasyDNS are long-term, enthusiastic supporters of the Bitcoin movement as well as this program. Please support our sponsor and head over to EasyDNS.com where you can handle all your domain needs and pay with Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, or Ethereum. So when you're thinking about domains or hosting, think EasyDNS.com. Hey folks, today I'm pleased to announce the launch of one of my projects, Token Markets 1.0, the future of e-commerce both on and off the blockchain. Token Markets is built for modern merchants and their early majority customers, combining the best of traditional payment methods like PayPal and credit cards, alongside Bitcoin, Ethereum, and token payments. You'll fill your store with shippable items and digital downloads right alongside blockchain token products, or even create custom bundles mixing the old with the new. Experience advanced yet accessible blockchain features like merchant-directed tokenized rewards, token-controlled access for discounts and item availability, and automated token delivery that doesn't require your customers to have a wallet set up in advance. Most importantly, Token Markets is a very useful tool, not a middleman. Payments are made directly from the customer to the merchant, with Token Markets monitoring and assisting both throughout the process. To learn more and start your free trial, head over to tokenmarkets.com. And as a special offer to existing merchants listening to Let's Talk Bitcoin, email info at tokenmarkets.com or give us a call at 1-530-475-2401 and tell us a little about your business to qualify for up to six months of completely free service, as well as the ability to help shape the future of our product. 
Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. So we've been talking about Bancor, which is really at its core, a form of money. It's it's trying to be a money. Outside of upgrading smart contracts and fixing problems, Bancor's services encoded into smart contracts could actually run without the Bancor company behind them. But when you stop talking about money, which is valuable literally because other people want it, and you start talking about digital collectibles or games, the question becomes a lot more nuanced. Does it matter if I own a token? If the company who created the game and runs the servers no longer runs the servers and I can no longer actually use the token? This question came up recently when early LTB community member Joe Looney noticed a single, quote, CEO key could freeze all CryptoKitties transfers. Last week, I spoke with Joe about this, actually, and he had some kind of interesting comments on it from the perspective of someone who had been building a similar game with Rare Pepe. So we're here with Joe Looney, a longtime community member and one of the brilliant minds behind the Rare Pepe project. Joe, how are you? Good. How are you? I am pretty good. So, Joe, I've been talking with the rest of the hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin earlier on this episode about the decentralization rubric, right? The From this extreme to that extreme of where decentralization really fits within projects and how so many projects claim it, but a lot of times they mean really different things. How does a game like CryptoKitties or Rare Pepe just in a sort of broad sense use the blockchain? What, it, what kind of value is it actually getting from that? I think in the, the very general sense of the term, because obviously if you're going to compare CryptoKitties and Rare Pepe's, they're built on two different platforms. But I mean, the basic idea is that you've created tokens, whether it be on Ethereum with CryptoKitties or Bitcoin with Rare Pepe's, and then you've basically, you as the issuer of the token, just decided what it is. You, you gave it a you gave it a form, I guess would be the best way to describe it. Um, so in CryptoKitties, it becomes a little cat on your screen. And in Rare Pepe's, it becomes a like a trading card with a hand-drawn Pepe and, on it. Yeah, in the most generic sense, that's, that's what it is. It's, it's giving, giving form to, to tokens. So it's creating a record of who owns which of these specific types of items effectively. The blockchain is being used as a way to, to keep track of that in a way that is decentralized from the company that's doing CryptoKitties or the company, and I'm using big giant air quotes, that's doing Rare Pepe, right? Like it's a, it's a way for there to be an infrastructure that doesn't actually rely on the infrastructure of the company because you're using the blockchain to keep track of those records and keep track of those transfers, right? Yeah, I think it's less keeping a record of something rather than just creating this scarce asset. It's not really, and I try to make this point a lot with Rare Pepe's, you're not buying the image, you're buying the token and the image is just what the token looks like. Is it really about scarcity though? Because if you think about it, if I'm Blizzard, right? And I say, oh, I, I run World of Warcraft. Why can't I create a hundred of something and then maintain that record in the database? It seems like it's about more than just the rarity. There's, a, there's an element of provability that goes beyond the company, right? Well, I think, I mean, using World of Warcraft as an example is interesting because there are items in World of Warcraft that even though Wizard controls the issuance, they have real value and people spend real money on them. It kind of begs the question, is, is there more to it when it comes to blockchain stuff? Well, I agree. That is the question. So then when you're building something like Rare Pepe, why would you use a blockchain relative to just doing what Blizzard has done with uh, World of Warcraft? What's the impetus behind that? With Rare Pepe, I mean, I guess the main thing for me personally as a developer, it's liability. So when you, if you're creating a central database and people are spending real money on buying things that 
you control 100% on your server and your database, you take on the liability. If the database becomes corrupt or for whatever reason things happen, I think you offsource a lot of that liability to the chain that you build a token on because you're not in control of that. You being the developer that runs the software that gives these tokens form. So if I'm Blizzard, then even though I can create scarcity, I still am ultimately responsible for maintaining that. And there are situations in which I could be responsible for that changing either, you know, because I choose to or just because it inadvertently happens because somehow it's able to happen. Someone compromises a server or something like that. So what you're saying is that by using a blockchain, you make it so that even if somebody compromises the game or even if you decide to do something totally stupid uh, relative to the deal that was made with users going forward, that isn't up to you at that point. It's already codified on the blockchain and whatever changes are out there are basically out there for everyone to see and to understand and, and basically agree to work with or not. And I mean, not only scarcity, but ownership. Sure. You know, and I think that's actually the most important thing. I think scarcity is one of those things that is kind of, it can be malleable because scarcity just, I guess, means a little more than just there's only this many and that'll be all there is, but more so I can tell how many of this thing there are. I guess, if, I, I don't know if that, like I made a clear point there, but. I think, I think that um, makes sense, yeah. This kind of brings me around to the thing we've been talking about, which is that decentralization seems to make a lot of sense for the reasons that you've talked about. But if you then take a decentralized system and you layer on top of it a further permissioning system, like we've seen with Bancor and most recently with CryptoKitties, um, which it's not a new thing in CryptoKitties. It's just something that has kind of come up in this conversation. Both of these projects have the ability to effectively freeze the ability to transfer ownership between parties. There are good reasons to do that, right? Because if somebody you know, gets in there and steals all the CryptoKitties or steals all the rare Pepes or something like that, then you could see people making an argument that, oh, we should stop that if at all possible. And the experience so far, especially in the smart contract side of the world, has been defined by these crises and then attempts to deal with the crises. And then sort of the attempts to deal with the crises seem to kind of be the cause of the next layer of crises. And we're still kind of learning as we go. So that's the question that I have is from your perspective and with a project like Rare Pepe, what happens if the company goes out of business? What happens? And is there a company behind Rare Pepe? What actually is powering something like that? And what's the end game if you guys decide to stop doing what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, well, with, with Rare Pepe specifically, no, there's, there's no company. There's basically a wallet that I maintain. It's just a viewer and a way to kind of keep track of your Pepe's and your private keys. And then there's a uh, JSON file on the rarepepedirectory.com that basically says what, what assets are certified Rare Pepe's and what's the image associated with them. It's very different from CryptoKitties in a lot of ways, but say the main way is there's no, and I guess this is, this is kind of the main difference between something like Counterparty and something like tokens on Ethereum. Counterparty already has the smart contract code hard-coded in server. So everybody's using the same code. You, nobody is creating their own contracts. When it comes to Ethereum, the tokens are created within a contract that's issued by either a company or a person. In the case of CryptoKitties, it's a company but they have the ability to write all sorts of functions into that contract. And I guess my biggest disagreement when it comes to these pausing functions and even upgrade functionality is it's not clear. 
to the users and in their marketing that they have the ability to effectively stop everything in a contract, all transfers and trades, but also to change the logic of a contract at will, basically. Obviously, there's good intentions. I mean, there's stated good intentions, and I, I want to hope that they're good intentions to want to do that, but it kind of perverts the whole system because you're building this contract and this kind of logic for how to create and trade and send tokens on a decentralized system uh, like Ethereum, but then you're adding centralized control in the form of pause functions and upgrade functions. So it makes me wonder why you even bothered with a blockchain at all. But that's the thing though, right? Is that there are reasons why you would use a smart contract. And I think that CryptoKitties is an interesting example of a game that isn't really a game. And it's, I, I actually see uh, it as being very similar to Rare Pepe in that way, which is really it's something that started being about the collectability more so than it started being about the game that's underlying. And on CryptoKitties, same thing. It's basically the only game is the ability to breed more CryptoKitties. And then you can use those to breed more crypto kitties or sell more stuff. So it's not like there's like some underlying property there. Like even we saw in kind of the early days with things like Spells of Genesis and uh, or, you know, Rust Bits or, you know, a variety of kind of early games that really were focused on the game. And then the token was sort of a strap on after the fact. And now we kind of see it the other way where it's really it's all about the token. And maybe there's a little bit of game there, but maybe the game just comes entirely later because now we don't have to wait for the game to be out before we can start playing with the game pieces. Kind of, what do you think about the trajectory of games within the space? And is there anything that you're looking forward to in the future? I like the idea of using these tokens as game assets. I think it's okay for them to exist first as collectibles and then later on as in-game assets. It just basically gives game developers a, a bigger basket, I guess, to choose from. So it'll be nice to see like things like Unity plugins and, and stuff like that for game developers that maybe aren't into cryptocurrency, uh, the ability to add tokens. But I, it kind of worries me that, I mean, cryptocurrency is a difficult thing to understand. And it's even harder to understand when projects like CryptoKitties have the ability to freeze their contracts. Because, I mean, you spend all your time telling people that, hey, here's this new thing, this cool new thing that is decentralized, it's rare, it's like this is digital scarcity. And then there is a possibility with Ethereum contracts that have built-in malleability that it isn't those things. That potentially could cause a lot of confusion, I think, in the market. So that does worry me. And to be honest, I didn't know that this functionality existed in a lot of Ethereum contracts till the Bancor thing happened recently. I saw a Jackson Palmer a tweet thread where he looked into a few other contracts and they all had the same functionality. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I was like, I wonder if the CryptoKitties one has it. And sure enough, it was built right into to CryptoKitties. And I just looked at another one today. There's another one called Codex that's coming out. That's like an art registry. Sure enough, that has the same pause upgrade functionality built right into it. So I think it's probably pretty prevalent in Ethereum project. It is a little worrying, I think. And the other thing that that breeds and we kind of uh, touched on it uh, in the beginning was liability. If I have the ability to freeze and change the logic in a contract, I can be compelled to do that. It's not good, I don't think, in the space in general. And I think if people are going to do it, it needs to be right up front and they need to be very honest with potential users, investors in their system that, hey, we do have this ability and here are the potential drawbacks of that. 
I like to say that we don't have best practices yet in cryptocurrency. Uh, we just have first practices. And anytime anybody does anything that's even a little bit successful, then it spawns all of these people who are like, oh, that's the best practice. And they start doing it. And I imagine that that's probably what got started here. Somebody was like, oh, I can fix the DAO or something along those lines, right? And, and then you wind up building yeah. it in. And the recent problem with Bancor that we've been talking about was actually caused in large part by one of these permissioned accounts being compromised and then being used to effectively rob the smart contract. So by introducing the ability to rescue funds, you also introduce a new weakness that can be exploited by people too. Yeah, and it's, what's even more interesting is you don't need to use it. It's extra code that you have to write into your contract. So people can build contracts without that functionality, but they're choosing not to. It's a terrible choice though, right? Because either you're building in the ability to save yourself from any problems you don't detect. That's the trade-off, right? Is the ability to fix these problems that might be really necessary, right? Like you might, as, a, as one of the, these projects, run into something where you really want that sort of control. And I think that's why these things are going in there. But what we're learning now is that, you know, <laughs> that like I said, the latest round of attempts to fix last year's problems are in fact the cause of this year's problems. And I'm sure what we'll be seeing the new best practices, so to speak, adopting and attempting to resolve this time next year too. <laughs> it might be creating more problems then it hopes to solve. Not the only way to approach a contract, even if you were to have a contract that had an issue with it. You just you can always create a new contract and and ask your users to move over. And I think that's kind of like what we saw after the DAO, right? I mean, we had some users that wanted to move over and some that didn't. So you had a split. You had Ethereum Classic and Ethereum. So I think in a case like CryptoKitties, you're probably going to have full consensus and all the users are going to say, yeah, we'll jump onto the new contract. But it's, I think you need to give users a choice. You can't, you can't make the initial contract malleable and not expect to have issues going forward. It seems like the paradox here really is decentralization versus control. We want both, but we can really only have one to the degree that we don't have the other. Right in the definition, isn't it? Thank you very much for your perspective on this, Joe Looney. We'll be catching up with you soon. Thank you. Okay, so we heard from Joe, and he has a little bit of a perspective because, as I mentioned, he's also creating a game that doesn't have these sorts of higher-level centralized controls built into it. But I'm curious, from your perspective, decentralization clearly matters in money, where the value of the network is, as I said, literally defined by the network itself. But as we get more into things besides money, does and how much does decentralization matter for these other tokens or networks? Just as much, if not more. I think we're seeing that with this enormous debate that's happening over centralization of control over facts, truth, politics, and news that's happening with Facebook, Twitter, Google, and other platforms like that. Meaning that we're apparently concerned about our access and awareness of political truths and facts being mediated by centralized organizations or even just centralized algorithms that are deciding what to promote and what to demote in, in terms of our attention. So that has nothing to do with money, but people seem to be concerned that this will affect our ability to do democracy, basically. And so I think that the same thing applies to any kind of tradable token, whether it's money-related or attention-related or news-related or any other kind of tokenization system. Yeah, I agree with that, Andreas. And I wanted to bring up, you make the argument a lot that money is a form of speech. And 
the lines start to blur between speech and money because a lot of tokens become money, even if they're not intended for that purpose originally, even if they're more sort of information based or based on something else, they still end up becoming money. And then money also becomes speech. I think the lines are really blurred and you could make a great argument that decentralization is important everywhere. So let me push back on that a little bit and uh, just narrow, I guess, my question. I agree. There are things besides money which are important. I think political speech and lots of types of speech are among them. Really, the question here, or at least the question that keeps coming to me, is there are a lot of games and a lot of things that look more like games than they look like something that's actually important to people. The tokens are important because they're used to represent ownership. So the bottom line is, is that if the CryptoKitties company goes away or if Spells of Genesis goes away, then yes, you would still have the token and you would still technically own it on the blockchain, but the value of it goes down dramatically because the only reason why, for example, one of these things has an image associated with them is because someone is running a server that has that image on it that serves that image. That isn't being handled by the blockchain because that information doesn't go into the blockchain and can't be served efficiently from it. So instead, you have to have these centralized services that provide that. And if they go away, then the utility of the token, what can you do with Spells of Genesis card outside of transfer it to someone else if the Spells of Genesis game does not exist and that company is no longer honoring that token? So that's different for me than something that looks like money or even something that just something that is important at a fundamental level, something like political speech. Whereas an in-game item, that's only valuable because the game continues to operate and continues to make it so I can actually use that there. In theory, there are other ways it could become valuable, like another game could come along and say, hey, all those Spells of Genesis tokens that you people have, we're going to also honor those in, in our game. But that's not that's the, the incentives don't really line up to cause that under most circumstances, at least in the current market. So that, that's kind of the, the broader question I'm trying to ask here is for things that aren't important. Are there things that aren't important or is everything important because it's on the blockchain and I shouldn't try to differentiate between? I, yeah, whether it's important is is arbitrary, right? One person might consider it important and someone else might not. Um, but the the speculation about future value, like you were saying, Adam, with the example of what if there's another game that comes along and says, oh, yeah, we can use all those tokens from the other game that was that's now defunct. As long as people think that could be a possibility, then there's going to be some kind of speculative value attached to it. And uh, yeah, blockchains are forever, usually. So or they're intended to be forever. So who knows what could happen in the future? I don't know. It's dangerous when we start saying this is important and this is not right, because that's that is in the eye of the beholder. And you also don't know what's going to happen in the future. I agree with that. I think, Stephanie, the, the, the main thing you pointed out is that this subjective experience of value is a key element of our economic and expressive freedom, meaning that my desire to see something as valuable that other people don't see as valuable and not accepting a common definition that other people have as to what is or isn't valuable or worth posting on a blockchain or sharing with others. If you don't have the freedom to have that subjective experience of value, then you lose a big part of your expressive and artistic and creative freedom. It is possible to create games that are fully decentralized, where things like the image that 
that represents your CryptoKitty is also stored on a decentralized, resilient storage platform like IPFS or Swarm or something like that, so that it persists regardless, and the company can go away and the thing still exists. And if that's the case, then in the future there will be games that have elements of centralization, which means they can disappear, and there will be games that don't have those elements of centralization, and therefore will be able to persist past the life cycle of the company that created them. And I would argue those are more valuable because they have that level of resilience. But I'd like to question the fundamental assumption that Adam made about whether these things are important and whether games are important or as important as money. Because the thing is, play is something that is an evolutionary adaptation that exists in a numerous species, especially in mammals, and is used as a formative mechanism to be able to simulate social interaction, hunting behaviors, uh, fight or flight behaviors, and to extend kind of the gestation and childhood period of a mammal and convey a lot of cultural knowledge that isn't genetic to our children. And whether it's a mama cat teaching its kitten how to fight and hunt and evade and hide and be stealthy and all of the other behaviors that they teach, or if it's a human parent teaching their child, or if it's children teaching each other through play how to behave in social environments. The idea that this is inconsequential or has no value is completely undermined by the biological evidence. Play is enormously important. Games are enormously important to a culture, and they're also an expressive art form. And I find it peculiar that people will say that these things are not important. So games are important in the way that you're defining them. But what I'm again, the question here is less about that and more about should games have the same set of standards applied to them, really? as things that are more important. And I am continuing to use that because what I guess I mean is if money has um, balance changes, that is really problematic. If political speech has, you know, if like the content is changed or is suppressed, that has major implications. If someone doesn't have access to a game, that doesn't have as serious implications, I would argue. Perhaps, but here's the thing. The marginal cost of creating something that is open, global, neutral, decentralized, and censorship-resistant is rapidly dropping to zero. So then the question is, if the additional cost to do all of those things, and to go from something that is controlled by one company and, and finite in its duration, and, um, and censored or limited in its uh, expressiveness, and, and the cost to make that infinitely expressive and infinitely resilient and permanent is very little, then what happens when companies start taking that option? It changes games forever. At what point does it become valuable for multiple companies to start using the same set of in-game active pieces? Because that really is the value, it seems like, that we're talking about in terms of the, the broader implications here. Is like If CryptoKitties by itself is doing what it's doing, then maybe that's not important. 
But if CryptoKitties becomes a set of tokens that are used by an ecosystem of products for whatever reason, because it helps bootstrap adoption or because there are grants available or whatever the rationale actually winds up being, then that seems like that matters. And that's the thing that's really different from what we have now. Because as it stands, like the thing that people are using tokens for, for the most part, is to transfer ownership of things. CryptoKitties uses smart contracts also to do some of their in-game actual actions in terms of creating new cats and stuff like that. But ultimately, that's what we're using these things for. We're using them as less efficient ways to do what we already do in existing games that have decentralization characteristics associated with them because that's trendy. But the thing that we don't do in traditional games is have assets that cross between different games or that are good in this game and also good in this game. And that's really the thing that it feels like tokens could eventually become really valuable based around in a way that can't be replicated outside of a system like this. So what you're saying is I have a CryptoKitty bazooka in Battle Royale and I can shoot my highly customized CryptoKitty into your face while playing that. That's right. Yeah. Like at the point that that like that's that's it. That's effectively impossible without something like tokens because companies don't trust each other for these things. But you introduce tokens into the situation and everyone consults the neutral record and suddenly the need to trust other people, the need to effectively actively collaborate versus passively collaborate by using the same tokens, that kind of goes away. And if you had a system like that, then Fortnite could create their own tokens. And then those tokens could correspond with things inside of CryptoKitties too. And you could kind of see this ecosystem emerge where game tokens are being issued by all of these game companies. And they're all useful within this common ecosystem within all of their games. There are definitely like complications and downsides to this sort of approach too. But that seems like the path forward for what could make these things really compelling and different. And then it wouldn't matter, as you said, whether or not a specific game company shuts down, because who cares? That's just one small element of what makes that token useful because they're part of this larger ecosystem. That's that's the thing I really think we're still lacking in games right now. And a lot of these different projects is that really these things are designed to be ecosystems. And a lot of them still are on their kind of first integration or first use case, which mostly is themselves in their own project. And it really will be kind of at this broader point where we see the interaction between different communities and how their tokens interact with each other within other systems, that we'll be able to see the importance of these systems emerge, at least in my eyes, outside of things that are important for just base reasons like money or political speech. I think that's the real promise of these neutral standards that are emerging, such as ERC-20 and ERC-721, which are interfaces for tokens that define a common baseline functionality that is interchangeable between all of these tokens that allow each company to do innovation above that. Because the truth is that if you expect one of these game companies to create a universal token that everybody else will be happy to use, but which they created, that's never going to happen. Every one of these companies is going to create their own, and you're going to get balkanization and fragmentation of the space rather than unity. But if you have a standard that's been neutrally created by people who have no stake in any of these games, and that is compatible across these games, then you have the possibility of this universal standard emerging. And first you have to transcend the lifetime of a single company, and you have to transcend the borders of a single game. Um, Once you have that and you have a neutral standard, you could imagine the emergence of these universal game tokens. It's a really interesting point because I was thinking about it from the perspective of something like CryptoKitties or some some project out there that isn't really a lower level protocol itself, but is a game itself could then spark that. And then those tokens could find use. But you're totally right. The actual standard isn't CryptoKitties. The standard is ERC-20 or whatever the other lower level protocol is. And that inherent compatibility. There are compatibility problems between ERC-20 tokens because they have different feature sets and 
there are complications and stuff like that. But all that stuff is very over, uh, achievable, and you could very easily see, you know, like games that recognize all tokens, right? That recognize Bancor tokens or different types of things like that, and use those to represent game pieces. There's nothing actually differentiating that outside of the fact that it is access to a different community. I, you know, one of the really interesting developments in that space that hasn't yet come to fore and most people are not aware of is the concept of introspection. Introspection is when you can ask a token what capabilities it has. So you can have a baseline functionality, which is common among all tokens, things like being able to transfer to another owner and to change the characteristics of the token. But then if you add more characteristics or capabilities, like for example, if it's a, a CryptoKitty token, maybe it has an additional feature or capability, which is called breeding, and it can do the breeding function with another CryptoKitty. That's a unique function that exists in a token that breeds, but, but not in tokens that don't breed. How do you know what capabilities a token has? And so that's one of the layers that is being built in the Ethereum ecosystem now, which is this capability of registration and introspection, where tokens can register their capabilities and can be interrogated. So you can ask a token, what kind of token are you and what capabilities or functions? Do you have the breed function? And the token can tell you yes or no, and then you can decide how to integrate it with it. Well, wow, that's wild. So you you might be able to actually talk to your crypto kitties and ask them, can they breed and do they want to be bred? <laughs> well, the the interesting thing is then you can approach a, a token from a black box perspective. You don't know if it's a crypto kitty or if it's a real estate deed for a house or if it's a token that represents money or if it's an in-game sword of Gondor that is used in a game. So then you can ask it, uh, are you tradable? Are you divisible? Are you breedable? Are you inheritable? Et cetera, et cetera. And it can tell you which functionalities it exposes. And for each one of those functionalities, you can then develop a standard. So if it says, yes, I am inheritable. Okay, what does that mean? It means I fully support the inheritance standards defined by X. So you can now run all of those inheritance functions. Or I am divisible or I am tradable, and then those have standards against them. So you can say, okay, well, if you're tradable, then you should have the transfer function, which takes a unit argument, and now I know how to trade you. Or if you say I'm divisible, you could have the split function, which takes a unit parameter. So you can essentially have all of these overlapping capabilities, and each one of them can have standards emerge around them that are like least common denominator. But as you keep adding those, the interaction becomes more and more complex. So really, we're talking about modular standards here, standards where you have little tiny packages that describe specific features, and then those can be essentially, you wind up with a list, right? That here are all the characteristics that define this, this type of smart contract. Absolutely. And that's exactly what's happening in the Ethereum ecosystem with the emergence of these standards. When you're talking about introspection, that's something that's actually served by the smart contract itself. So I ask a smart contract, I say, tell me all about yourself, right? And then it tells me proactively about itself because it knows how to do that. Can smart contracts lie in that sort of context? Like if I created a malicious smart contract and then I said, oh, this has all these features associated with it. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Absolutely, they can. And you can also have various registries that keep prototypes of functions. So you can say, well, what exactly is the code fingerprint for your transfer function? And does it match the secure, mature, trusted standard for that? 
or are you doing things in a slightly different way? So you could actually go a step further to add some security features to that to make sure that it doesn't do something weird when you send it value. But again, you know, these these are complicated problems. Is there anything within any of these protocols that you can think of that doesn't constitute an arms race? Because that's what I like. It doesn't really matter what we talk about. Ultimately, if we're talking about something that's happening within one of these ecosystems, it feels like everything inherently is an arms race because you introduce something, maybe it has weaknesses. And, you know, again, the incentives to compromise these protocols are so substantial. Like there's no way to solve bots buying tickets before people who are like fans buy tickets because fans have the incentive to buy a ticket for themselves and maybe a couple of people. But bots and the people who operate those bots have the incentive to buy as many tickets as they possibly can. And so the amount of money that they can reasonably invest into breaking whatever that system is, is far less than than what individuals are too. So, I mean, is, is that the sort of situation that we're looking at here is that anything that represents a true improvement is going to see a huge investment of you know capital on the other side to try and break it because it's so valuable to do that? Yeah, but I, I'd like to switch the terminology around. Instead of saying these are all susceptible to an arms race, I would say that these are all subject to evolution. Arms race is just really a subset of evolutionary pressures inherent in any system that involves interactions between multiple parties all pursuing their self-interest and changing their strategy as they go along. So because these things are used by humans, they will express all of the nuances of, of human society, including evolutionary pressures and social game theory and all of the other interactions. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by EasyDNS.com and TokenMarkets.com. Content for today's show was provoked by Andreas Antonopoulos, Adam B. Levine, Joe Looney, Jonathan Mohan, and Stephanie Murphy. Music for today's show was provoked by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. And this episode was edited by Adam Levine. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at Let's Talk See you next time.